So John chapter 12, we're going to get right into John chapter 12 and we're going to start in verse 20. So John, John has just recorded Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. And remember, he arrives in Jerusalem accompanied by people who have seen uh, Lazarus who has been raised from the dead. So resurrection becomes a big theme in John's gospel. Um, it's, and it will recur over and over and over again. And there are all kinds of different ways that John expresses it. He just doesn't simply say resurrection. Uh, he, he talks about rising up. He talks about standing up. He talks about, uh, um, living again. He talks about eternal life, all of these different things. And it's very much prominent in, uh, everything that John writes. But John has, has recorded Jesus arriving and his message to the Jews. And then in verse 20, he's going to have a different audience. All right. So John chapter 12 and verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast. So those that are going to the Passover meal. All right. So we're in the spring. All right, this is preceding Jesus' trial and, re- and crucifixion. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, we're going we're gonna to move on to the next section, but I want to... I wanna, drill down onto this as we read this text. Um, So a group of Greek speakers, all right, and John calls them Greeks. Now that does not necessarily mean they're from Greece, all right, because Greek was the language of the Roman Empire. It was the most commonly spoken language. Most people assume that the language of Rome was, the language of the Roman Empire was Latin because that was the language of Rome. But the reality was Rome ruled over a largely Greek-speaking world until about the 3rd century AD. Most of the people in the Roman Empire spoke Greek. Latin was really restricted to the government and the leaders of the, of, uh, of the Roman uh, magisterium. But for the most part, people spoke Greek. Um, and they spoke a, a set of dialects that we call today koine, um, which just means common or vulgar. Um, and not vulgar in like the way we use vulgar. Vulgar means common in Latin, okay? Um, so it was a common language and everybody could understand everybody. To get an idea of what that means, just imagine a conversation you might have from somebody from Louisiana, um, somebody that you meet from the mountains of West Virginia. Now, not our resident West Virginian. He's been long enough in the real world. He speaks English, but, um, but, uh, but there's, there's a, there, there's, there's something called English, right? But people speak English very differently. If you've ever heard somebody from, uh, from Yorkshire, from England, speak English, sometimes you wonder if they're speaking another language um, because they have a very, very heavy accent. And yet, so people can pretty much 
parse out the commonality. That's kind of how Greek worked in the ancient world. Uh, we have millions and millions of people speaking this language spread over the Mediterranean basin. And so um, when he talks about Greeks, he's just talking about somebody whose primary language is Greek. Now, Jesus and his disciples, their primary language was either Aramaic or a Aramaized version of Hebrew. Um, and we make these big divisions, this language and that language, because today we have nations. It wasn't so clear. Hebrew and Aramaic are very closely related languages, and they, they were were literally interacting for about 1,500, 2,000 years. So it's difficult to say where the line is. Um, so why then do they go to Jesus' disciple, Philip? Can anybody think of a reason why you would go, if you were a Greek speaker, you would go and find a disciple named Philip? It's a Greek name. Philip is a Greek name. And Andrew is a Greek name. So Philip and Andrew, probably their primary language was Greek. And they spoke Aramaic. They were available. But they had come from a part of Galilee that was a Greek-speaking part of Galilee. So if you're a Greek speaker and you're kind of getting, you can kind of get pieces and bits and pieces of what's going on. But then you hear somebody speaking Aramaic calling to a guy named Philip. And you want to talk to that guy who's speaking Aramaic, who do you go talk to? You talk to the guy who's got a Greek name. So you can only imagine this conversation. I think, you know, Philip, he probably did speak fairly good Greek, but they come up and they start talking to him. You ever, you ever met somebody and you know just a little bit of a language and you make the mistake of maybe introducing yourself in that language and then they start talking to you and you realize you don't really know anything of that language. Um, this happens to me every single time I introduce myself in Japanese to somebody. They immediately assume that because I know a little bit of Japanese, and it's getting less and less every day, um, they start talking to me and I'm like, no idea. I caught like one or two of your verbs. That's pretty much it. I no idea. Let's just talk in English. Ego ga hanasumasuka. So... So the the uh, so we we get into this into this conversation. So he goes to Philip, and Philip they say we would like to meet Jesus. We'd like to talk to him. Now Philip's sitting there going, you know, I mean, if I'm Philip, right? I go so go talk to him. Right? I mean, it's not like Jesus is pretentious. It's not like Jesus has an appointment book. You know, it's not like he's behind a wall. You know, and, and his, his attendees are, I mean, the only people they ever try to keep away from him are sick people and children, which I don't really understand that one. But, um, but they, you know, so Philip goes to Andrew, his brother Andrew. He says, well, you know, hey, uh, these guys want to talk to Jesus. Um, what should we do? And Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus. And Jesus, in his typical way, does not answer the question. So we get a context from the way that he answers them, what he thinks is going on in Philip and Andrew's minds. And more importantly, what's going on in the minds of John's audience. Now John, keep in mind, John is one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his, his close disciples. There are three, James, John, and Peter, who are always with Jesus. So John got to observe this exchange personally. All right? 
So they come to Jesus, they say, you know, these, these Greeks, they want to talk to you, these Greek speakers want to talk to you, and that's going to involve translation, right? Because Philip and Andrew, Jesus probably doesn't speak Greek. Um, every word that we have preserved of him, um, we have indications that he doesn't speak Greek. So when he heals people, he always heals people with using Aramaic words when he's talking. Um, uh, and so they go, they go to Jesus, he wants to talk to him, and look at what Jesus says in verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you've been with me for these last 29 weeks, what has Jesus usually said involving an hour? Usually, all the way back to chapter 1 with the, the marriage supper in Canaan, Cana, when, when his mother asks him to make the wine, what does he say? My hour has not come. All right? He says, my hour has not come. When they, try to, when they try to push him for answers to questions, show us a sign. He's always, my hour has not come. But now a group of Greeks come to me and they want to talk to Jesus at the Passover feast, getting ready for the Passover feast in the temple complex. Philip, John, uh, Philip and Andrew come to Jesus and Jesus goes, the hour has come. Now that had to have been exhilarating for guys that have heard the hour has not come for three years. They're like, really? The hour has come? Awesome. Now, they don't understand what's happening. But look at what he says. The hour has come, verse 23, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, Jesus is doing two things right now. First of all, he's announcing his death and burial and resurrection. But he is also speaking to the attitude of people who are encountering Jesus. And I think it's interesting that it happens when these Greeks come to ask to see Jesus. Because I think in the back of Philip and Andrew's mind was this idea that these Greeks, these non-Jews, these Gentiles, these Goyim, all right, which is the Hebrew word for Gentile. Uh, these people, they want to see Jesus, but they're at a distance from him. Philip and Andrew, they're, they're close to him because they've been his disciples. They're Torah observant Jews. They're Galileans. They, they're from the same place he's from. Everything about their setup, they're close to Jesus. And, and because of who they are, they're close. But these Gentiles, they're far away. They're, they're, they're out there. So does Jesus want to talk to the ones who are far away when he's already got all the ones so close? And Jesus turns it on his head and he says, the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Now that's, John tends to code the resurrection as, as Jesus' glorification. But it's also this idea, when we think about glory, we need to describe glory the right way. Glory is something that increases. It comes from the word glow in, our, in English. Right? It is the idea of something glowing, something increasing in intensity. So now, the presence of the Son of Man is about to be increased. It's about to be intensified. It's about to go beyond the boundaries and expectations of the people, even those who have been following for a while. And then he says... I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. What an interesting illustration. 
Think about this. Don't rush over this for a while. Is a grain of wheat alive? It doesn't, it, it, it's dormant. It's not active. In fact, we found grains of wheat in Egyptian burials that have been buried for thousands of years. And the amazing thing is they've taken some and planted them and they've, they've germinated and come alive and grown plants. That's how we know the kinds of wheat and stuff that the Egyptians were growing, the kinds of barley and things that they were using. Um, by the way, this has absolutely nothing to do with the message, but the Egyptian sign for money is a beer stein. What kind? Uh, anyway, uh, it's just, I mean, our, ours, you know, in England, right, we, we talk about money as pounds, right? So you get that. You're like, oh, it's a measurement of pounds of silver or gold. And in Egypt, they're like, beer. It's a good currency. All right, anyway, so, they, they, uh, so this, this situation has nothing to do with the message at all. It's just a little linguistic nerdness. Um, so, so, this, um, so he takes this idea of, hey, you take a grain of wheat, and a grain of wheat is perfectly fine. It's perfectly self-contained. There's no, nothing's ever going to happen to it. It can survive in perpetuity in its shape and size. You can put it a solo and keep it for 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. As long as you keep it, wet, keep it from getting wet, it's going to be perfectly fine. It's going to be perfectly good to be ground up into flour, used to make bread. It's going to be perfectly fine to plant it one day. But the thing is, it's all alone. It's all alone. And I think Jesus, looking at all the people following him, he's saying to them, he's like, this, this thing you have, this place you think that I'm going, this, this, this idea of, of everything, of Judaism, of the temple, of the Messiah, all that stuff, as long as you just keep it bottled up, stored in a grain silo, and never take the chance of letting it die. You never take the chance of letting it stop being this grain of wheat. You will never truly live. As long as all you have of your faith is this easily managed dry product that one day might become something, guess what? It will never become something. The Trasks have a thing about the movie or the the show, um, the Alone show. Mike and Kathy love to watch Alone. Uh, not, I don't, I wouldn't say I love to watch it. I love to make fun of the guys on it. Um, there was one guy who spent like weeks eating pine wood. I'm like, that seems like a good. And he's complaining about stomach problems. Really? You just ate a two by four. That might be a problem. Um, anyway. On Alone, there was a character in one of the early seasons who got pulled off the show because of malnourishment despite the fact that he had all kinds of food. He was trying to eat as little as he possibly could to last as long as he could, and in the process, he was destroying his own body. Even though he had all the resources at his hands to actually survive, he wound up losing because he took all of his resources and he didn't use them for their purpose. And Jesus says, hey... You guys, you've got everything. You've got the scriptures. You've got my presence. You've got all this stuff. 
And you're looking around asking the question, all right, so what do we do with the grain? What do we do with the potential that Jesus is putting into me? These Greeks are coming and asking whether they can talk to you. Jesus, what do we do about that? And Jesus says to them, are we just going to hold what we have? Or are we going to take the chance and sow it to see produce, to see fruit, to see production among these people that maybe they're not too keen on? Maybe they don't like those Greek guys so much. Maybe they're troublemakers. Now, I will tell you that the Greeks in Galilee were rather well known as being the frat house down the street. They really were. There's a region called the Decapolis that the Jews called the land of the demons. Because the Greeks were just having a grand old free-for-all. They just worshipped whatever god they felt like worshipping, however they felt like worshipping it. And for the Jews, this was absolutely abhorrent, that there were no standards, no rules, that these people just totally embraced all of the, the pleasures that the world could throw at them. And so they were kind of a lesser group. So, so wouldn't it be better for us to kind of hold on to our grain, kind of store it until we get to just the right group of people that we want to be a part of what we're doing? And Jesus says, now is the time the Son of God, Son of Man is going to be glorified. Now I'm going to expand. Now I'm going to, I'm going to spread out. And it's time for the grain of wheat to fall to the earth. Because when it dies, it bears much fruit. Now watch what he says. Whoever loves his life loses it. Now what does he mean by loves his life? takes it, stores it, put it on a shelf. My life is perfect. I never need to change anything. I never need to challenge anything. Everything is just the way I like it. Let's stick it in a snow globe and call it life. Let's seal it up. Whoever loves his life loses it. And and whoever hates his life in this world, watch what he says. He doesn't just say, he, whoever hates his life. But he says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He says, when you realize that your purpose, your life was not given to you to be stored up and made perfect, but it was given to you to be broken like the treasure. Remember, John ties everything together, right? To be poured out like that alabaster uh, a container full of ointment in chapter 11. To take a risk like Jesus does when he crosses the causeway to, to, uh, into Jerusalem and is challenged by the Jews. He says, our lives were given to us not for this world, not to be preserved in this world. Now, this is super significant as well to the Jewish readers. And I, I'm going I'm to digress into a little bit into funerary behavior. I know you guys are get super excited about ancient funerals. But remember what I mentioned about the Jews. The Jews uh, would not, they, they did not, they preferred to bury bodies, but they couldn't. So what they did is they put the body... In an, into a cave, let it desiccate, let all the flesh fall off. Then they took the bones and they put them in a box and then they put all those boxes on a shelf with the rest of the family. And we found hundreds and hundreds of these ossuaria, these bone boxes. And they're literally filed like, you know, like, you know, they file the white banker boxes. 
This is how, I mean, there's just stack upon stack upon stack of Joseph, son of James, James, son of Bill, you know, Bill, son of, you know, it's just this, this whole, there are no Jews named Bill, but um, this, this whole, uh, this whole thing. And it's just a whole wall of bones because, because this life, you wanted to be ready for this body in this world to be, if it was going to be raised again, you wanted everybody to be together. The Romans, meanwhile, just burned bodies. The Romans were like, body done, burn it. Dump it in the Tiber River. Um, the Greeks used to make a big party about it. They're going to burn the body. It's one of the reasons it's so hard to find a Roman or Greek tomb, because they burned their bodies. The Persians to the east um, exposed, dealt, dealt with their bodies by exposure. That's exactly what it sounds like. They would put the bodies on a tower and let birds eat them. Yeah. All right. But the Jews, they were so obsessed with keeping everything together. It was Torah observance. The whole body had to be kept in one place. You had to make sure you got all the bones of that whole body in one place and all that stuff. They were so concerned about their life in this world. And Jesus actually flips the script about on them and says, why worry about this world? Live for eternal life. Hate the world, This not hate the world that you live in, like the people, but hate the success and achievements, making that the definition of life. Life is defined by your success. Oh, he lived a good life. Well, how do you know he lived a good life? Because he had, no, no insult to anybody that has one of these. Because he had a fleet of Teslas. He lived a good life because look at the size of his pool. Look at the size of his home. Look at what he had. Look at the size of his portfolio. But is that really the definition of a good life? Or is that the definition of loving this life so much that it's all that we can see? We store it up and we put it on a shelf. We say, that's my life, and it's perfect. It's everything that I ever wanted it to be. If anyone serves me, in verse 26, he must follow me. Now, what does Jesus mean? He is headed to the cross. He is headed to the end of life in this world. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. But then in verse 27, he says this. Now, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus saying this for his own benefit? He is saying it for those that are listening. If you believe for a second that Jesus was not fully resolved to go to the cross, you're missing the point. He is not saying, he, he's using rhetorical device, all right? What we call style switching, or, that he's, he's speaking to those around him and his words are expressing their thoughts about this. Because what do the disciples constantly do when Jesus tells them he's going to the cross? Oh no, Jesus, got to be a better way. Got to be a better solution. Now, 
I have to be honest. If somebody tells you, in order to truly be faithful, you've got to follow me in everything, and then says, and now I'm going to get crucified. Exploring alternatives is a pretty human thing. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me for this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then something weird happens. A voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now, are you going to listen to me or not? That's what he's saying. Are you going to hear me or not? Now, keep in mind the same idea. Jesus has not jumped to another topic. He's still talking about that seed thing, about the life. Living your life. Why hate your life? What, why, uh, are you going to follow him or not? Now is the judgment, the crisis, the deciding point of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John says this on the side. He said he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus says to them, now is the time. Now is your deciding point. Who is he talking to? Who is Jesus talking to? Is it just Philip and Andrew? How many people are there? He actually, John said it. There's about a hundred people there. They hear this voice. Jesus says, now is the deciding point. Now is the decision, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the, the, the diagram splits. Do you choose to love this life, to take the grain that God has given you, put it up on the shelf, store it and say it's wonderful and beautiful, or do you take the chance and shed the, uh, spread the seed and pl- be planted and die to grow up to have fruit together? Will you choose the isolation of the success and glory of this world? And he's talking about, in the Jewish context, all the Torah observance and all of those things. In the Greek context, all of the pleasures that they're seeking after. Are you going to choose to live for your ideal of this life or are you going to follow me? I'm going to tell you something. Jesus was born a Jew. Jesus did not speak only to Jews. Jesus was, and and take this how you want, Jesus was more than a Jew. The current theme in Jesus' scholarship is to treat Jesus as Jesus was just a really good Jewish teacher. And if we study him, we find his moral teachings and they're so wonderful and wise. And what a great rabbi Jesus was. Jesus was never going to be just a Jew. 
He was not a well-behaved Jewish boy from Galilee. Jesus was a disruptor of everything that people thought were the divisions of this world. And he says, you get to choose. You can continue to be one of the things that the world tells you to be, or you can follow me and become something else. But in order to do that, you've got to die. That is a hard, hard message to follow. It's hard for us knowing about the resurrection in the past. Imagine what it was like for these guys who had never really dealt with resurrection too much. Sure, they had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. That's going to argue a lot in his favor. But they're still human. They're still struggling. He's saying, will you decide? How are you going to choose? So the crowd in verse 34 answered him. Typical. We have heard from the law that the Christ or the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Really? He's got a guy he just raised from the dead standing in a corner. He, he's surrounded by people that have seen all of the signs. The Pharisees have questioned him and gotten so frustrated they're trying to kill him. So, who exactly are you talking about? Now, what are they doing? They're, they're asking a rhetorical question. Obviously, they know who Jesus is talking about. Jesus said to them, and he picks up another one of John's themes, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now this is an awesome statement that Jesus makes. It's awesome on a lot of levels, but as a historian, it's really cool. Because one of the disruptive groups um, of uh, Judaism in the century before Jesus, Jesus the, uh, the, uh, the Qumran community, they had a document called the Judgment of the Sons of Light and Darkness. And basically they said, we, the truly Torah observer, everybody does this, right? No one ever says everybody's included. They're always like, we who are specialer than everybody else. When the Messiah comes, we, the sons of light, will be more special, more happy, more bright, more joyous. Everything will be great for us, while the rest of you will be judged in darkness and wrath and destruction. Yay for us. That's a brief summary. It's the cliff notes. You can read the whole document for yourself. What does Jesus say to this mixed crowd that includes Jews and Greeks? He says, follow me. Because access to the light is access to me. You want to become a son of light? You don't have to become a Jew living on the edge of the wilderness, being baptized 73 times a day. He says, you want to, you want to, all you have to do to be a son of the light is to stay in the light. When the glow 
reaches the Gentiles. You will choose light or darkness. The glow in Judaism, you will choose light or darkness. You will choose to follow and stay in the light or you will choose your own path and you will wander off in the darkness. You can choose to either follow me and die and bear fruit or you can choose the darkness and you can dwell alone in darkness for the rest of your being if that's what you want. But the time has come to choose. And how do they choose? The vast majority of people in Jerusalem within just a couple of days will call for Jesus' crucifixion. They will choose darkness. They will choose solitude. They will choose their own path rather than following him. Why? Because following him requires dying to me. And people don't want to do that. Human beings are innately opposed to the idea of surrendering our will to someone else's. We instinctively hold on to the life that we define as the most important. And let's be perfectly honest. Every human being in the world at some point in their life realizes the world is not a movie about them. But continue, we often tend, we all have this tendency to still think about how every single thing that happens affects us. Let me put that there for a second. Did you notice in this recent political campaign how the ads became all about what you get depending on who you elect? Who you elect? We stopped even pretending like there were platforms. The ads were, these, this was, and I could be wrong, I haven't lived as long as some, as some of you guys. This was the most vile political season I have ever seen. There was just attack after it from both sides. I'm not saying one side was sitting there going, we're so good and holy, we're never going to attack anyone. Everybody was getting in the mud and attacking each other constantly. I mean, just, it was, and what was it all about? Is this person, you're going to let this person take away this thing that you have? You're going to let this person take away this thing you have? You're going to let this person do this? You're going to let it... it was constantly about the self. It was the most self-centered political season I've ever seen. Move back into here. Christianity that's about the selfish person, about what you get from God, of course it appeals. Of course it's successful. Of course it works. Everybody loves it. Hearing a message about taking up a cross and following Jesus, about surrendering ourselves, being united to him in his suffering, well, that's not cool. We, we don't want that. We, we, we don't want to have to, we want to be able to have our priorities be the grain on the shelf and have Jesus added on top. It's nice to have security here and security here. So let's throw Jesus on there. Let's, let's just add him in the mix. And ultimately, that's just as selfish as just keeping it on the shelf. But truly laying our lives down, that's hard. 
Every preacher I've known as a kid has preached a sermon like this as an adult. And they've said, now's the time. All preachers are southern in my head. Now's the time for you to make the choice. To choose the cross. And that's how I grew up. That's how preaching was. All right. They, we, we call them stump suckers because they would preach like that until they ran out of oxygen. They would go, now is the time for you to follow Jesus, to take your choice, to make your choice, to walk his way, to take your cross, to rise up and to be. And that was, a, that was how they would preach. They had a big, and we called that the stump sucker because they would you know, suck a stump up out of the ground. I'm not here to give you a guilt trip about following Jesus. I'm here to tell you that following Jesus is hard. Jesus knew it was hard. The language he uses to describe following him is hard. He's not giving us an easy path. If you choose to follow Jesus, you choose, I'm going to be honest, the hard way, the narrow road, the difficult trail. If you choose to follow Jesus, you choose to surrender ownership of all that you own and instead behave as if you are a steward of the things that God has entrusted to you, which means parting with things that you might really love. Surrendering them to others. Giving up on things that you really would like to have for the sake of the gospel. But we choose to stay in the light or to be in the darkness. We choose to truly die to live or just live and die. To just be wasted away. And Jesus calls us to an extraordinarily difficult road at times i'm not saying it is it's all cacti and and thorns there's some joy there's some celebration there's some hope but there's also some struggle because look at what happens in verse 36 and 37 while jesus had said these things he departed and hid himself from them i think he did that so they would actually think about what he said and though he had done so many signs before him before them They still did not believe in him. It is a hard minority road to follow Jesus. That's just the truth. You say, well, then why would I waste my time doing it? Because it's the truth. Living your life up on that shelf... That's a lie. Living your, world, your, your life for your own pleasure, your own needs, your own opinions, that's a lie we tell ourselves about the ultimate reality of the universe, that it's all about me. That's a lie. Satan was a liar from the beginning and he continues to lie in the lives of every human being, telling him that they're the only one that matters. Their security is all that matters. Their happiness is all that matters. It's a lie and it's darkness and it's deceit. We follow Jesus not because he's easy, but because he is true. 
And I'm okay if you don't accept that statement. I'm okay with it. But don't call yourself a Christian if you don't. Because a Christian follows Jesus. That's the reality of who we are. Do we do it perfectly? Are we as consistent as we should be? But are we striving to follow the light? Always to stay in the light. To be the sons of light. Jew, Greek, free, slave, barbarian, Roman, man, woman, child, doesn't matter. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus leaves no room for alternatives. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry if it offends. But you cannot read the Bible and come to any other than conclusion than Jesus and only Jesus is the means of our hope in life. You join me in a word of prayer. Every day, Jesus, help us to follow you more. Not a single one of us has arrived and achieved. We are all still just struggling to stay in the light. We get distracted. We drift into the darkness. But you call us back. Father, help us to always be following Jesus. Staying in the light. Being the sons and daughters of light. Living the life. Laying down what we we so often bring back into our lives. Killing it and letting it be so that we can follow you. Help us to strive for a life lived in the flesh. Not for ourselves, but for the Son of God. If we call ourselves Christians, Jesus, we call ourselves your disciples. We call ourselves those who have laid their lives down to pick up a life that you have given us. May you be glorified in all we do and say. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. My brothers and sisters, we're going to dedicate the Operation Christmas Child boxes. Then we're going to take a break after that, and then we'll come together for our membership meeting in a little bit, right?